You're listening to The Served Up Show, a podcast that features inspiring beverage professionals and topic experts that share their passions through meaningful content. Your hostesses, Bridget Albert, is best known as the Market Fresh Mixologist, an industry mentor with over 25 years of experience. And I'm Julie Milroy, best known for my passion for leading change and helping others grow in their careers. Grab a cocktail and sit back. Let's learn how we can make a positive impact in our industry. Hey y'all, Bridget here. Guest host Kyle McHugh and I had a spirited conversation with Kevin Jennings, who was a longtime leader for the fight of LGBTQ equality. He became a high school history teacher after becoming the first member in his family to earn a college degree in 1985 when he graduated from Harvard and helped students create the nation's first gay straight alliance club in 1988. He went on and found GLSEN, the Gay, Lesbian and Straight Education Network in 1990, the first national organization dedicated to fighting anti-LGBTQ bias in K through 12 schools. In 1994, Kevin was part of the committee which created the LGBTQ History Month, now observed every October, and he authored Becoming Visible, the first textbook on the subject for young people. In 1996, he helped write and produce Out of the Past, the first documentary on LGBTQ history for young people, which won the Sundance Film Festival Audience Award for Best Documentary. In 2009, Kevin became the Assistant Secretary of Education for Safe and Drug-Free Schools, where he led the Obama administration's national campaign against bullying in schools, earning him the nickname of being the anti-bullying czar. Kevin went on from the Obama administration to run the Arcus Foundation, the world's largest private funder of LGBTQ rights, and the Tenement Museum, the nation's premier museum dedicated to the immigrant experience. Most recently, he serves as the executive producer of the 2019 PBS documentary, The Lavender Scare, which details the McCarthy era witch hunts for the LGBTQ people and the 2020 HBO documentary, Welcome to Chechnya, and was shortlisted for the 2021 Academy Award for Best Documentary. In 2019, Kevin became the CEO of Lambda Legal, the nation's oldest legal advocacy group fighting for full legal equality for LGBTQ people and everyone living with HIV. Kevin has also authored seven books. He shares his passion for change and his social justice work that he's been leading for over 40 years. This is a significant episode that explains the current state of human rights in our nation, how it relates to our past and to our future. Thank you listeners for tuning in and enjoy this bold episode. Kevin, welcome to Served Up. Kyle and I are so excited to have you on the show today. Thank you, Bridget. I'm really happy to be here. Wonderful. Can you talk a little bit about your background and what really brought you to Lambda? Well, let me first explain what Lambda Legal is. Uh, Lambda Legal is America's oldest LGBTQ+, lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, and queer rights organization. We were founded in 1973, and we work primarily in the courts where we do what's called impact litigation, which is we bring lawsuits that will expand the rights of LGBTQ plus people. We'll have our 50th anniversary next year, which we're very excited about. 
I came to Lambda actually as a little bit of a surprise to me. I'm actually not an attorney. I am a former educator and I worked in the Obama administration as an assistant secretary in the Department of Education. But I had known Lambda for many years because when I was a teacher, and then when I founded an organization called Glisten, which works in schools to make them safe for LGBTQ plus young people, young people would get bullied or young people would be told they couldn't start a GSA or whatever. And I would send them to Lambda and Lambda would go to court. Lambda always won. So I was very impressed with this organization. So when they called and asked me if I'd be interested in being the CEO, I saw Lambda's track record of winning so many rights for LGBTQ plus people. And I said, I would be honored to be considered. And almost three years later, here I am. That's amazing. There's so much to unpack with all of that. I want to go back before we talk about all of the amazing work, to your point, that Lambda Legal has done successfully for decades now, going on almost half of a century. But for you specifically, Kevin, where are you from? And what you know, helped get that journey to where you are today on the 19th floor in New York City? Okay, so I'm going to give you the long version. I Please, was born. love that version. <laughs> I was born and I grew up in what was then an unincorporated town called Louisville, North Carolina. It's a town of about a thousand people, about half an hour west of Winston-Salem. My father was a fundamentalist evangelist. My mother was a gospel singer. We were very poor. Um, we lived in a trailer park on an unpaved dirt road. No, neither of my parents finished high school. My mother went through the sixth grade. My father went through the 10th grade. My mother grew up in Appalachia without running water or electricity, but she had a dream that one of her kids would go to college. So of course I went to Harvard because doesn't everyone go to Harvard from that background and became the first person in my family to get a college degree. My mother quoted the Bible a lot. And um, at my college graduation, she pulled me aside and she whispered one of her favorite verses in my ear, which is, I always do my mother in her accent. I'm not making fun of her. It's the way I hear her voice in my head. Um, she said to me, Kevin, always remember to whom much has been given, much will be expected. And I knew when I graduated from college that I'd been given this unbelievable privilege of getting a college degree, which no one in my family had ever had before. And that that carried with it a responsibility to try to help people who were not as lucky as I was. So I became a teacher right out of school. I was uh, pushed out of my first job because I was gay. Back in the 80s, only one state protected you from being fired from your job because of your sexual orientation. And that, that state was Wisconsin, which I use as a pop quiz and no one ever gets right. I taught in Rhode Island, so I had no legal protections. I went to my next teaching job in Massachusetts, where one day um, I, was, I didn't want the kids to find out I was gay because I didn't want to lose my job again. I always tell LGBTQ plus teachers, though, it's a glass closet. The kids always know who the gay teacher is. Uh, and sure enough, one of the kids figured it out and came to me one day and told me that he was gay and that he was thinking of taking his own life. I was 24. I had no training in suicide prevention. I was terrified. So I um, said, let's go see the school counselor. And he said to me something I'll never forget. He said, why shouldn't I kill myself? My life isn't worth saving anyway. And that took me back to how I had felt growing up in North Carolina, where when I was 16, I had tried to take my life. And I made myself a little promise that day that whatever I did with the rest of my life, I would try to make sure that the next generation of LGBTQ plus young people felt that their lives were worth living. So a couple of weeks later, I got up at an assembly and I came out to the entire school. This was November 10th, 1988, a very different time. It was the height of the AIDS crisis. Ronald Reagan was president. 
as I mentioned, you could still be fired from your job in 49 states. And the next day, a young girl burst into my office and said, I want to start a club to fight homophobia. And I was kind of like, hello, nice to meet you, because she was a ninth grader and she wasn't in my class. She wasn't on my team. I was like, who are you? And I was surprised that she was so wound up. So I said, well, tell me why you care so much about this. And she said, that's easy. My mother's a lesbian and I'm tired of hearing my family get put down around this school. Naive little 24-year-old me never thought about the fact that I might have a student who had a LGBTQ plus parent. So I was kind of caught off guard. And I said, well, what, what do you want to call this club? Have you thought of a name? And she said, I don't know. You're gay and I'm straight. Let's call it the Gay Straight Alliance. And that was the first Gay Straight Alliance in an American high school, November 11th, 1988, Concord, Massachusetts. I'm proud to say that around half of all American high schools now have GSAs. And it's been remarkable to be part of that movement. As I mentioned a moment ago, I founded an organization in 1990 called GLSEN, which worked to help schools better address issues of sexual orientation and gender identity. And that eventually led me into the Obama administration, where I was the assistant secretary for safe schools and led the Obama administration's national campaign against bullying in schools. So it's been quite a journey that brought me here to Lambda Legal. And my mother has now been gone 20 years, but there isn't a day I don't hear her reminding me in my head that to whom much has been given, much will be expected. And you're definitely delivering, you know, on that in such big ways. I'd love to talk to you about the current state that we live in and about the community and about the setbacks that um, everyone has had. And, you know, where do we go from here? What can we be doing better? And how can our allies really support and rally? That's a fantastic question, Bridget, which there's a very lengthy answer to. First of all, I understand that for me, LGBTQ plus rights are CNN. It's on 24-7. And that for many of your listeners, it may not be something that they think about very often. So let me just set the stage for where we are right now. We are facing an enormous pushback against LGBTQ plus equality. This year, over 300 anti-LGBTQ plus bills in 36 different state legislatures have been introduced. There is a tidal wave of efforts in America to roll back the rights of LGBTQ plus people. Uh, Three quarters of American states are considering such laws right now. People, I think, sometimes want to imagine it's just one or two outliers. No, it's most states. And at the Supreme Court level, we just had the Dobbs decision a couple of weeks ago, which struck down the right to choose for people who get pregnant. In that decision, in his concurrence, uh, Justice Thomas wrote that he also thought they should overturn the Obergefell decision, which was a case that Lambda Legal won seven years ago, which granted people the right to marry in this country. And uh, Lawrence versus Texas, which is a case that Lambda Legal won 19 years ago, which struck down the laws that criminalize same-sex relationships. We're fully expecting that there will be challenges to both those cases that will probably go to the Supreme Court in the next few years. And we could actually see things go backwards very fast on LGBTQ plus rights in this country. And people think, oh, you know, everything's changed. That wouldn't happen. Well, this is where the nerdy U.S. history teacher in me comes out. In 1875, Congress passed a comprehensive Civil Rights Act, which guaranteed the rights of Black Americans. A few years later, the Supreme Court struck it down as unconstitutional. And 20 years later, they legalized segregation in the Plessy versus Ferguson decision. So the Supreme Court has shown before 
that it will roll back people's rights, as has this court. In 2013, in Holder versus Shelby County, they struck down the Voting Rights Act, which protected the voting rights of racial minorities in this country. And as we saw two weeks ago in the Dobbs decision, they struck down the right of people to control their own bodies. So I would not put it past this court to take us rapidly backwards. So what can you do? The average citizen has four things that nonprofits need. Their voice, their vote, their time, and their money. By voice, speak up. Right now, before the Senate, is the Equality Act. This is a piece of legislation that was first introduced in 1975, 47 years ago, that would extend civil rights protections to LGBTQ plus people. It has passed the House. President Biden has promised to sign it. It just needs to pass the Senate. I recently spoke to a senator who actually is for the bill, who told me that she is getting 10 times as many calls against the bill as for the bill. So use your voice, speak up. Number two, use your vote. Make sure you vote. Let the candidates that you are talking with know that you care about these issues and that that will be a determining factor in who you vote for. Use your time. Volunteers are the lifeblood of nonprofits. We depend upon volunteers. So if you have some extra time, contact a local LGBTQ plus organization, like your local community center or your local youth group. Offer to mentor a young person, offer to paint the rec room at the community center, do whatever it is you like to do. But that time you donate is as valuable as the fourth thing that you have, which is your money. A lot of people think that corporations and foundations pay for charity in this country. In actuality, over 80% of charitable giving in this country comes from individuals, people like you and me. So if you have resources to spare, find an organization you believe in and donate some. So to recap, we need your voice, your vote, your time, and your money. The last week or so where we've seen this 50-year president of Roe rolled back and had a Supreme Court justice come out basically targeting those same acts that you just outlined, Kevin, do you think that they purposely picked up the Dobbs decision first because it was so big and so bold and so impactful? to repeal Roe to then potentially target those who are targeting. And it is a systematic targeting of rights that is happening. We know that they are reading from the same script when they are going in front of school boards and state legislatures and, and anywhere local to state to government level. They're saying the same words using the same terminologies because it's a coordinated effort to make this 10 times the calls fighting some of the bills looking to protect rights as they are the other side. From Lambda Legal's perspective, from your perspective there, did they lead with the Dobbs decision in order to help then use that as draft to pull these other decisions through? Or was it just the first of many dominoes to fall in their attack? I can't read the mind of the justices, but I think both things you said could be true simultaneously. That um, if you go back, there was a very interesting article, the New York Times, about how Justice Alito, back when he worked in the Reagan administration's Justice Department in the mid-1980s, outlined a strategy to overturn Roe that took almost 40 years, but was exactly what happened. They play the long game. They worked on this for 40 years. And So I don't think it was an accident uh, that Dobbs came up first because they have been working on it for 40 years. And I also think that that we could be in a domino falling situation right now, which is very, very disturbing. 
So I think both of the things you said are right. Uh, there was a strategic decision made, and we are in a situation where dominoes may begin to fall. Because the right to privacy underlies the Obergefell decision, which granted same-sex marriage, and underlines the Lawrence decision, which decriminalized same-sex relationships. He also mentioned the Griswold decision, which is a decision that goes all the way back to 1965, which granted the right of people to access birth control. So Justice Thomas is even saying that we should limit people's ability to access birth control. What was quite fascinating was he did not mention another decision which founded on the right to privacy, which is Loving versus Virginia, which is the decision that legalized his own marriage. So if you're to follow his logic, exactly, you would have to also overturn Loving versus Virginia, which would put him in a very awkward situation. I do think that some of the justices pick and choose what they want to overturn uh, and that it is not consistent, but it's driven more by politics. I just want to scream. <laughs> I, just, I just want to scream really loud, Kevin, because it's, you know, we're living in 2022 and yet we're taking so many steps backwards. And as a mother of a 18 year old, you know, just just want better. Right. We want better for our children. Mm-hmm. Want to have to stop fighting all the way around. I think that for our listeners, it would be really great to kind of go back and talk about where this stems from. Well, before we get hopeless, I want to remind people that there is something that we can do, and Lambda Legal has called upon Congress to do it. People are under the mistaken impression that the number of Supreme Court justices, which is nine, was set in the Constitution and is set in stone. It is not. We originally had five Supreme Court justices. And when in the 1860s, we expanded to what's called nine circuits, which are conglomerations of states where justices oversee multiple states, it was decided we need to go to nine Supreme Court justices so there would be one justice for each circuit. Well, we've continued to expand the number of circuits. There are now 13, but we have not expanded the size of the court. And it is time to do that. It's also time to do things like put in place a code of ethics for Supreme Court justices. We have one for Congress, but we don't have one for the Supreme Court. And we've seen some very ethically questionable things happen, such as the wife of Justice Thomas being actively involved in efforts to overthrow the government. There are things Congress can do now that could minimize the damage that the current court could do, such as expanding the number of justices to match the number of circuits, which was last done in the 1860s, and putting in place a code of ethics, which holds Supreme Court justices accountable for behaving in an ethical manner. So it's not hopeless. Once again, we need Congress to act. The second reason I am not hopeless is because of the young people like your daughter, Bridget. Gallup organization did a poll about three months ago. And they examined how many people identify as LGBTQ plus. It exactly correlated with age. 20% of Generation Z, the generation your daughter belongs to, identifies as LGBTQ plus. One in five young people. Now, I think this is happening because of the progress we've made where there's less stigma attached to being LGBTQ plus than there was when I was 18 years old 40 years ago. So I think that As more and more people feel comfortable being their authentic selves and being true to themselves, we will see less and less prejudice because the number one thing that reduces prejudice towards LGBTQ plus people is if you know someone who's LGBTQ plus. 
And the vast majority of young people now know a classmate, know somebody on their football team, know somebody in their key club who is LGBTQ+. And I think the next generation is much more sophisticated in their understanding of things like sexual orientation, gender identity, racial identity than my generation was. And I'm sorry, we're leaving them a little bit of a mess, but I'm pretty confident they'll clean it up. I love that. And I think that's our long game is if they're playing a long game, which they have, and you noted it for 40 years of 50 years plus of row, the long game to repeal has has arrived. Ours is the fact that and I've seen numbers as high as 25% of Gen Z identifying somewhere on the LGBTQ spectrum, that as, as more people do get to know people who identify on that spectrum, the people being the, their true selves is going to be normalized in a way that should help us fight for these rights that are human rights. Right. And I also think that, you know, to look at our opponents, I would say imitation is the sincerest form of flattery. Because they basically copied what we did. In 1973, when Lambda Legal was founded, same-sex relationships were illegal in 45 states. And we set the long-term goal of repealing that. And it took us 30 years until 2003 when we won the Lawrence versus Texas decision, but we did it. So they're simply copying what we did for decades. And it worked for us. It'll work for them. And as the tides shift with the next generation, it'll work for us again. So I think that what we have to do right now is essentially try to protect as many rights as we can until the new generation is sitting on the bench and sitting in Congress, because I really do think they'll have profoundly different attitudes on these issues. Yeah, I agree with you a thousand percent with that. You know, I think it's really interesting that, that you were a teacher and, you know, being in that classroom, do you think at some point, Kevin, that, we'll, that we will see LGBTQ plus history in our history books, because I do think that if the history can be taught at the level where our children are coming up, that it's not, you know, it really becomes um, part of the fabric of our country and a better understanding of, like Kyle said, of human rights. Well, Bridget, you're singing my song because I was a history teacher and I was on the committee back in 1994 that created LGBTQ plus history month. So I've been obsessed with getting that history out there. Um, I used to start my class every year, and I did this for 10 years, with a quote from George Orwell's novel, 1984. And this is the quote, those who control the present control the past. Those who control the past control the future. Because if you can erase people from the past, then it's impossible to see them in the future. And I think that's why you're seeing some of these hateful bills like in Florida and Alabama, where they've made these don't say gay or trans laws, because they don't want young people to know that there are LGBTQ plus people in the world. They're literally trying to erase our existence. I do believe that we are seeing progress in some places, Illinois, New Jersey, California, now all require the teaching of LGBTQ plus history in their schools. So it seems to me that we're moving in a very divergent way in this country where we've got some places that are saying you absolutely have to teach this and some places that are saying you can't talk about this at all. And that concerns me because for an LGBTQ plus young person now, it depends on what I call the lottery of birth. If they're unlucky enough to be born in Alabama, they get no education. If they're lucky enough to be born in Illinois, their education is required. I was in the U.S. Department of Education, which very few people know is prohibited by law from recommending curriculum to schools. The government very much wanted 
the power to set curriculum to remain at the state and local level. So here's where your listeners can actually really make a difference. Call your local school board member. Say, I think this should be taught in schools. Are you teaching it? If not, why not? Um, School boards, there's 15,000 separate school boards in this country. And many of them are in very small towns where one or two people really can make a difference by showing up at a school board meeting and saying, this is important. So get involved in your local community because that's really where education policy is set. And they are the other side, the opponents to human rights are showing up to these meetings and people need to know that if if that conversation is important to any of our listeners, even if you don't have children in the schools, going to those meetings and hearing what is said, well, not always the most scintillating of topics, having been to many a school board meeting myself, uh, both uh, as a student and now as a parent. It is vitally important to know that if there is not a voice in that room to counter some of these scripted attacks that are going into school board meetings all across the country currently, then there will be no other voices heard that may counteract that when it comes time for voting or for other just advancement of human rights in our communities. Well, first of all, Kyle, I think school board meetings are the most fun you can have with your clothes on. So um, I would disagree with you a little. Um, Just kidding. I've been to a lot of them myself. They are not. But you're absolutely right that there is a coordinated effort to attack teachers and students. A very disturbing article in the Washington Post this week uh, that GSAs are now under attack again in schools, which given that I founded the first one 34 years ago is stunning to me. These things have been around since before a lot of people who are listening to this were even born, but suddenly they're controversial again. I want to say one thing about that. Lambda Legal won a lawsuit in 2000 called Colleen versus Orange County Unified, which established the rights of students to have GSAs in their schools. It is illegal to tell kids that they cannot have a GSA. And if you are encountering that, you can either go to our website and file a complaint. We offer a uh, legal help desk. It's lambdalegal.org slash help desk. Or you could call one of these toll-free numbers, 1-833-I-SAY-GAY or 1-833-SAY-TGNC. So we have attorneys who will support people who are being told they can't have GSAs uh, because that's illegal. Uh, We established that precedent 22 years ago, and we are ready to take on any school system that is going to deny young people the right to have the clubs that they want to have. That, I think that's a wonderful thing. And we will be repeating those phone numbers over and over for you. I think that a lot of the kids in the community feel very powerless at times, you know, especially those that are from um, small towns, not too sure what to do, where to start, or maybe their parents are not on the same page. So mm-hmm. to know that they can pick up the phone and um, have a conversation is such a huge opportunity And we do know that it's the next generation that's going to truly create the change that will hopefully last and the good work that you're doing can then cease. (laughs) Yeah, I also want to point out another resource for people. Um, Sadly, LGBTQ plus young people remain much more likely to attempt suicide than non-LGBTQ plus young people. In fact, they're five times more likely to engage in a serious suicide attempt. And I want to make sure that people know about the Trevor Project. The Trevor Project operates a 24-7, 365 days a year hotline for any uh, LGBTQ young person who is feeling suicidal. So I want to make sure that people know about the Trevor Project as well. And you know, the thing that is most despicable to me is 
some of these laws are requiring schools to out the students to their parents. Now, over 40% of homeless people, young people in this country are LGBTQ+, kids who've been thrown out of their homes by their parents and put on the street. So these politicians are literally putting kids' lives at risk because we know the number one thing that correlates with the high suicide rate among LGBTQ plus young people is family rejection. When families are not supportive, young people are much more likely to end up homeless, much more likely to attempt suicide, much more likely to drop out of school. And these politicians who are putting these kids' lives at risk to win some political points, frankly, disgust me. You know, when I was a teacher for 10 years, I was taught that my number one job was to do whatever it took to help my kids succeed. These laws are not designed to help kids succeed. They're designed to hurt kids so that some politicians can run around and brag about their accomplishments. And I find that despicable. The cognitive dissonance about it, too, because usually these are very, very similar audiences that are calling themselves pro-life. And when you're setting up human beings, young people who need all of the support and development they can get, when you're setting them up for those kinds of numbers, I mean, they are staggering. We are a proud LGBTQ family and a proud trans family. And when I started learning more about the numbers that are affecting this community, it is heartbreaking. So to have somebody who calls themselves pro-life at the same time, to your point, create these nefarious laws or promote and advocate for them merely to win another two to six years in office, it is just heartbreaking to know that human beings have that capacity for, I'll call it evil. And again, the cognitive dissonance of, well, life here is important uh, at what I define as life. And over here, I'm going to ignore that life or the numbers that we have, the hard data that we have about what happens to people who are rejected by their communities wholeheartedly. It's amazing. Well, Congressman Barney Frank once said, the problem is the pro-life movement's concern for children begins at conception and ends at birth. And these same people who are pushing so hard to restrict people's right to choose are also voting to cut Head Start programs, to cut education funding, to prohibit discussing LGBTQ plus issues in schools. It's ridiculous. And it is being done for political gain. And as I mentioned before, my family were fundamentalist Christians, and I had to memorize 25 Bible verses a night as a child. So sometimes I end up quoting the Bible as well. And I would say to these politicians who are getting elected on the backs of children, uh, the verse, what profiteth it a man if he shall gain the whole world, but lose his own soul? That's good. That is really good, Kevin, because it's so true. Just selling themselves completely out for only their own gain. It's, it is disgusting. It's absolutely despicable. I would love to return to hope. Yes. <laughs> for, for just a minute. It's time. <laughs> I think it's time because I don't got any tissues around here right now. <laughs> Can you, you know, talk about, because you've done so much amazing work and you've been such a warrior, social justice warrior, right? And a hero to so many. What do you think the ultimate outcome could be with the work that is being done? I'll use a couple of quotes here. First is by a friend of mine who is an LGBTQ activist who said, Kevin, it's too late for pessimism. Pessimism is a luxury we cannot afford. 
that really motivates me. Um, I refuse to give in to pessimism because that's what the other side wants. They want us to believe we're powerless. They want us to believe we cannot win. They want us to believe that their victory is inevitable. I think our victory is inevitable. When I was a kid, and I know this is still true in most schools, you had to pledge allegiance to the flag. I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America and to the republic for which it stands, one nation under God, with liberty and justice for all. I really believe that when I pledged my allegiance to that flag, I pledged my allegiance to liberty and justice for all Americans. And I think most Americans agree with me. And I think that we will eventually win because most Americans believe in the concept of liberty and justice for all. We may need to do some education to bring them along, but deep down, I think that pledge still resonates for the majority of Americans. And the second thing is, I have a framed tweet on my desk by my hero, which is Congressman John Lewis, and I want to read it to you. Do not get lost in a sea of despair. Be hopeful. Be optimistic. Our struggle is not the struggle of a day, a week, a month, or a year. It is the struggle of a lifetime. I've been at this for almost 40 years. I came out 40 years ago this year, and um, I plan, like John Lewis did, to work until the day I die, trying to make sure that liberty and justice for all people in this country is more of a reality. And we cannot give in to despair. We cannot give in to pessimism because then we take away our own power. I love that on so many different levels. The good news is, Kevin, we've only just met, but I feel like they're three of the most positive people here as hard as the times that we're facing are. And that's part of the reason Bridget and I have known each other and, and worked together for so long, because we give each other such positive energy to go out, go forth and get shit done, which is what we're here to do. On the note of positivity, on the note that you were able to have the strength and the personal bravery to come out as you did, to be a warrior as you have been. And I mean, the fact that you were the original founder of the first GSA, let alone all of the other work you've done over these last 40 years, what can somebody who's sitting at home listening to this, listening to our talk do? What is the best route they can take to go out and make a difference themselves to help rights for everybody? Well, as I mentioned earlier, your four assets are your voice, your vote, your time and your money. Spend them wisely. Uh, because that's how you make an impact. Eleanor Roosevelt, who pretty much wrote the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, was asked once, well, where do human rights begin? And she said, human rights begin in small places close to home. I think too often we as individual citizens give away our power to our, quote, leaders, unquote, in places like Washington or Tallahassee or Albany, and we need to take that power back. The reality is change begins in your workplace. Change begins in your place of worship. Change begins in your town. I'll tell you a little secret. Having worked in Washington, leaders don't lead usually. They follow. They follow what they think the average person wants. President Obama said something that I have also on my desk. He said, we are the ones we have been waiting for. So let's quit waiting for the next Martin Luther King Jr. And let's go be the next Martin Luther King Jr. You know, when he started, he was a 25-year-old preacher that nobody had ever heard of in Montgomery, Alabama. And he changed the world. We all have the power to change the world. So let's take back our power. Let's change our workplaces. Let's change our families. Let's change our places of worship. Let's change our communities. And then our leaders will get in line behind us. Amen to that. 
Can you tell our listeners where they can find Lambda Legal? Sure. We're on the web at lambdalegal.org. And we're also available via the phone, as I mentioned, one eight three three I say gay or one eight three three say tgnc Please reach out to us. We do operate a national help desk where we provide resources and support to people who are experiencing discrimination and mistreatment. We take over 5,000 calls a year. They're all answered by a, a licensed attorney. So please get in touch with us if you're experiencing discrimination. Please go to our website and download resources. For instance, we have a guide to your legal rights if you want to start a Gay-Straight Alliance, or as they're more commonly called today, Gender and Sexuality Alliance, because kids have gone beyond the idea that everybody's gay or straight. They have a much more sophisticated understanding than my generation did. So go to our website, call our hotline. We're there for you. Kevin, I'm going to promote a little of your own work as well, because I don't think you're going to, and I love that about you already. You've written seven books. One of them, Mama's Boy, Preacher's Son, is your memoir talking about your background. So anybody who wants to know more about what you've teased us with today, please check that out. You won a big award at Sundance for a documentary that you were a part of called Out of the Past. You were the executive producer on The Lavender Scare. So there's so many other pieces of material out there that you at home can go and learn more about Kevin, his journey and the incredible work that Lambda Legal is doing on behalf of human rights. So, Kevin, thank you so much for everything that you have done and are currently doing for this fight. Well, Kyle and Bridget, it has genuinely been a pleasure talking with you today. I love your energy. Keep the faith. We're going to win. We just have to not give up. I want to thank you for your energy, for your good work that you continue to do. And I just want to wish you just a ton of peace and some great health, you know, as we move forward in this fight. So thank you for your time. We sure appreciate it. And we do hope that you'll come back and chat with us again on Served Up. So cheers to you, Kevin. Cheers to both of you. And thank you for having me on today. Thanks for listening. Served Up is brought to you by Southern Glazers Wine and Spirits. Produced by Zunu.online. Music by We Kill the Lion can be found on Spotify. Make sure to subscribe to be notified of future Served Up episodes. Cheers!